Hello and welcome to the Future Work Life podcast. My name is Ollie Henderson and in a couple of weeks, series 12 of this podcast will be kicking off. In the meantime, after receiving some brilliant feedback from republishing the Daniel Pink episode in March, over the next couple of weeks, I'll be sharing 12 of my favourite episodes since I launched Future Work Life. And today, you'll hear my conversation with Justin Welsh from June 2022. Justin, pleasure to speak to you today. I've got a question for you and I'm going to struggle I think maybe to get this word out because you recently wrote about the importance of autodidacticism Mm -hmm. so it's a long word I wonder if maybe you could start by explaining what it means but more importantly why you think it's a critical skill for the future of work yeah I, I mean to be autodidactic means to be able to teach yourself right to be able to learn without a formal mentor and um I just think it's critical because personally, it's meant a lot to me. Um, you know, whenever I need to figure something out for my business or my life, my my general first instinct is not to ask somebody else. It's to do my own research because I believe that most advice that is given um, both online and offline is extraordinarily contextual. Mm. So that advice is very specific to someone's specific journey. It's very specific to their background. It's very specific to all the different things that they have gone through that make up their life. So the way that I think about it is the more that you can teach yourself, the more that you actually learn through your own lens, through your own experience, through your own background. And that helps you train yourself for uh, doing the same thing as more you know, uh, problems come up in your business, as more opportunities arise, the more that you can teach yourself, the more likely you are to be successful in your own arena with your own experience. Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? And I, I think from my own experience, and I'm sure this is reflective for you as well, it's easy sometimes to think, well, I wish I'd made decisions earlier in life. But actually, like you say, decisions you make are often contextual. So some of the things that you do later can only have happened because of the experience you've had before. Obviously, the past couple of years, things have significantly changed for you in your career. Do you think you could have done that earlier? Or do you think the mm. previous 10, 15 years of your career led you to that point? I think it. I think it's... A little bit of both. Um, me as a person, I like to figure out new challenges. I've always been interested in tinkering with things that I don't understand how to do. And so I believe that I could have probably left you know, what I would consider the corporate world a little earlier and gone on this journey. I'm glad I didn't. Um, I think a lot of what happened in my background from building a large sales organization, um, to growing a rapid startup company, to working with my peers, to hiring people, to figuring out how to sell, all of those different things, I think uniquely make make up who I am today. Mm. And I think because I've acquired a lot of those skills through my experience, I think I'm more likely to be successful today than I may have been you know, had I started this seven years ago instead of three years ago. Um, But I also have the confidence to think that had I tried it seven years ago, because I like to think that I'm relatively autodidactic, that I would have taught myself, I would have figured out how to do it and ultimately arrived at maybe not the same, but a similar outcome or destination. Yeah. Just to continue the theme. So you now offer some amazing systems and 
templates and frameworks for people to use as they maybe start their journey in creating content, but also trying to scale it and trying to integrate it into your life in a way which allows you to be consistent. But I wonder how much of that is applicable to anybody who uses them and how much do you have to, as an individual, customize them in order to be able to fit with your tone of voice and your expertise? What have you yeah. seen in terms of how people are using them? Yeah, I think um, I think systems are good for everybody. I think nearly every creative, when we hear the word creativity, we think um, sort of ad libbing, right, off the cuff, um, you know, just wildly skilled, sit down, produce something. That might happen, right? There are people who are like that, right? There are comedians who just would produce off the cuff. There are people who can sit sit at a piano and make up a piece of music. That makes a very, very small percentage of the creative population, right? And so I don't, I don't like to build a business or build a creative, you know, work um, with an outlier mentality. Mm -hmm. The way that I think about it is what what is most likely to allow me to be creative on a regular basis to keep me writing, to keep me producing, to keep me building, uh, building, to keep me tinkering. To me, that is systems. And that might just be um, a personal sort of thought process around it. But I don't like to sit down at the computer and look at a, bl- a blank screen and have no idea what I'm, what I'm going to do for the day. So to me, systems are there when motivation or creativity falters, and it eventually will. One day, you will not feel creative. One day you will not feel motivated. One day you will not want to do any work. And systems help you work through that because they tell you step-by-step how to turn something into something else. And so I don't think my systems are perfect for everyone. I think systems are very helpful for people. And for each person, there are probably their own systems that I think will greatly benefit them. But for me, I've constructed mine in a fashion where I know that when I sit down Monday morning at my computer... Six hours later, all the things that I want to do for the week will generally be finished because I know exactly what to do step by step. And to me, that is great for when motivation and creativity falters. Yeah, 100%. Talk us through what your daily routine looks like. I mean, do you have a routine that you stick to? Because again, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, when people talk about creators as well as creativity. And I think a lot of people think about creators as I don't know, lying on the sofa for half the day and going for a swim and then maybe coming out and just magically creating something and that's it. But as you said, there's systems that sit behind it. And I guess there's also routines that you have to stick to. I mean, it's a job, isn't it? For sure. And I don't like to be so rigid that it becomes um, less fun or that there's no flexibility or that I can't go out to lunch with my wife if I want to. That's the whole purpose that I work for myself. But I I generally am a routine-based person. So I do have routines. I I like to be flexible. But here's generally how it works. Um, Every morning I start uh, on social media, right? I have a cup of coffee first. I don't log on to social media right away. Like I sit down, have coffee, wake up, do all my normal things. And then around 7.15, my social media posts come out. So I spend 45 minutes to an hour engaging with my audience. I think far too many creators with a large audience don't spend a lot of time engaging. Um, I like to think that's my differentiator. So you'll notice that I'm often online in the morning, writing comments, engaging with other people, supporting my friends, working with my community. That is generally how I get my day started. Um, 
after about 45 minutes to an hour of that, I work out. So either walk on my treadmill when it's super hot here in Nashville, or my wife and I go for a five to six mile walk. Generally, if the weather's nice, we're doing that walk because that's where a lot of creativity flows. Mm. It's where our relationship improves. It's where we spend time together. So I love kind of having that early morning walk. On Mondays, I run through my content system after that, which is I have really about a nine-step process for capturing ideas, doing supportive research, writing my newsletter, walking through an editing flow, writing my sort of sales copy that's getting people to subscribe to my my newsletter a couple different times, turning that newsletter into a thread, turning that thread into five pieces of content. I usually write uh, a story, an observation, a contrarian take, a listicle. I analyze the story. And then the ninth step is really publishing that to different platforms. So if I can get all of that set up through Monday, then it allows me to do some interesting things Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, which is generally um, working with my clients. So I, I advise early stage SaaS companies. I'm, a C, uh, I'm an angel investor. So you know, working with uh, the, the group of folks that make up the LPs in the, in the fund that I'm in, um, you know, go out with my wife, hang out, talk to my friends. Friday, I take off every week. So I try not to do any work on Friday. Um, and then the weekends, I try and stay off the computer. I don't always do a really good job of it, but that's, that's my goal. Monday is really that front-loaded day where I like to try mm. and take care of as many things as possible through a system. Yeah. When you say Friday and the weekend off, do you still engage with comments? Because you'll schedule posts right on those days. I mean, are you still yeah. kind of dipping in to, to, to do those things? Much shorter, maybe 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, not just because I want to get off the computer, but like, I don't think everyone else wants to be on the computer, yeah. but my newsletter goes off every, uh, goes out every Saturday morning around 8 a.m. Central Time. So I usually just am there to make sure that it goes off without a hitch and that, you know, it's yeah. delivered and that people are opening it and things like that and analyzing whether the subject line worked and, and all that jazz. But the majority of, of my, my work routine is front loaded into the week. And then as the week progresses, I work less and less and less. And that Friday, Saturday, Sunday is really when I'm spending a lot of time with, with my family and friends. So yeah. I love that. I love the way we've set it up, but you know, a couple months from now, it could completely flip because I change my routine all the time just to keep it really interesting. I uh, know I like that idea. I try and do something similar. I mean, it takes the pressure off the end of the week, I think, sometimes if you front load it. I think it's when you're leaving things towards the end of the, the week and you feel like you have to squeeze those in or compromise yeah. on the time to enjoy yourself and spend time with people that you have fun with and love. So I completely get it. Thinking broadly, I mean, what's the most significant change in mindset you've experienced in your career, I'm interested in what effect that might have had because it has pivoted significantly. And I'd be intrigued whether there was a moment that you had a change of mindset or whether it's just something that's evolved over time. Yeah, there's a few milestones. I wouldn't call them milestones. It's probably the wrong word when I tell you about them. But um, there are a few specific moments that have uh, changed my mindset. One is, um, you know, I was a former SVP of sales and then eventually chief revenue officer at a company called Patient Pop in Los Angeles. Grew that business. Um, you know, it was my first attempt as an executive. Grew it from you know dollar one up to fifty million in recurring. Built a huge team of one hundred and forty people, and then in December of twenty eighteen, around Christmas time, I had this really massive panic attack where um, things were just like the team was just huge and the revenue was big, and I had never been there. Like I, it was all new to me. Right, every every dollar was a new dollar. Every hire was a new you know employee milestone, mm. and when you have a large team, you often delegate. 
And when you delegate, you know, and you're like me, I'm a, I'm a control freak by nature. Um, you start to worry and you start to get in the business instead of working on the business. And I just, I I started to feel loss of control and I just, this all culminated in this really big panic attack. I think it was like December 19th or something like that. Um, but my wife called 911, all the, you know, professionals came out and, uh, I literally thought like I was dying and, uh, that was a big shift. That was like, a really good moment for me to take a step back and think like what's really important. And I know this sounds like a cliche story, but this is like the, the truest thing that's ever happened mm-hmm. to me. And um, it was that moment. It was just sort of like, Hey, there are more important things to do. I want to spend more time with my wife. I want to get healthier. I want to treat myself better. I want to <laughs> stop burning out. And so um, that's what really pivoted me towards working for myself. I think the second major mindset shift was when I was an executive, I, I was confident but all that confidence had to be distributed through, you know, people who worked for me. When you're mm-hmm. at the top of the sort of totem pole, you know, managing people, you can set the strategy, but everyone else has to execute on it. And so, um, yes, I was confident, but I, I had to be confident in other people's ability. And when I became a solopreneur, um, I I had to become only confident in my own ability. And that's where my confidence really shot through the roof because mm-hmm. Uh, the more that I tried things, the more some things didn't work. Other things worked really well. And as soon as I saw that sort of signal and the noise, I just doubled down on those things. And the more things that worked, the more confident I became, the more confident I became, the more money my business made, the more money my business made, the more I invested back into the business. And it became this really, really cool sort of snowball effect. And now I sit at a place where I'm fully confident in my ability to build and grow this business for the long haul. And so that was a really huge you know, moment in time for me. Brilliant, yeah. That's the advantage, isn't it, as well? Of There's the idea of building in public, which has become sort of common parlance, and there's loads of different variations of that. But certainly when you're building something which is all about sharing your ideas and you're able to do it at scale, and this is, I think this is sort of a realisation I've only had relatively recently, which is that the advantages of social platforms is the reach. And if mm-hmm. you write something that resonates with people, then it the algorithm likes it and it gets attention. And I guess that's a really great way of validating not just your ideas, but I suppose your decision ultimately to become a solopreneur. I also though think sometimes it, that puts people off or that at least the, the, the idea of thinking in public puts people off because perhaps if it doesn't resonate, for example, some of the CEOs I work with, they're scared of putting their ideas out there because what if it doesn't get many likes or what if it doesn't get many comments? I mean, how do you think about that and I suppose as a broader point is it imperative for leaders to be sharing their ideas in a public forum like that is that the reality of the digital world we work in now I don't think so I think that there are plenty of leaders and CEOs and people who aren't on social media at all and run very successful companies Um, I think it's getting more and more important I think you will see more and more leaders be on it because I think for the most part, like if you are out there writing your own stuff and in videoing your own stuff and doing your own podcast, then um, the downside is very limited. Now you could say something really, really dumb, right? Mm-hmm. And you could find yourself in a world of trouble, but if you're a genuinely good person, like 
and you understand, you know, how to keep it on target when you're when you're on you know social media. Generally, the upside is humongous, right? Mm-hmm. The upside is is the the reach that you were talking about a little bit earlier. So for me, the way that I think about it is, I, I think of it, and, and I'll say this in a weird way, and so hopefully people will, will know what I'm talking about. But I think about it as a game, like I think about it as like a sport, right? So if I wanted to be really good at basketball, like I wouldn't watch it on TV. Or I wouldn't read a book about it. I would go and practice or play the game or attend a sports camp or go to the, yeah. you know, go to the court and play. And so if I want to be really good at marketing my business, well, I'm going to go play. And when you go start playing basketball for the first time, generally most people are pretty bad at it, right? You have to learn to dribble and shoot and pass and all the play defense, all the different stuff. And I know this is an overused analogy, but like, that's what it is. Yeah. If you want to get attention online, you want to use attention to drive business for, for, for yourself you have to get good at it and being good just comes with practice. And so I love the fact that like sometimes things fail because it's, yeah, you want it to be successful, but the best thing that you can do is look back and say, why did this fail? And if you figure out why it failed, it's like, oh, that's a really cool learning experience. So the next time that you publish a piece of content, you have reduced the likelihood that it will fail. And if you continue to reduce likelihoods over time of failure and continue to slowly increase likelihoods of success, then you get better over time, just mm-hmm. like anything else. And so I think about it as a game. I think about it as, you know, trying to trying to outsmart the system, trying to understand, you know, why things resonate, try to learn human psychology. And by the way, if you get really good at it, writing online and understanding human psychology, it's really helpful offline. And so I, I highly recommend it. And it's, you know, it's what powers my business. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I, I, I get the analogy. It makes complete sense. That game aspect, perhaps this is a slightly different connotation of the word game, but many people talk about how you might game the system. And, and what mm-hmm. they mean really is how you can get an algorithm, let's say LinkedIn's algorithm, sure. to boost your post. And I know there's sort of various ways of doing this or ideas behind this, You know, making sure you're you know, present in the feeds of people who have got lots of followers or making sure that you engage regularly. Now, some of these are just good practice. It's good to build a community and engage with people. But these kind of hacks, in your experience, are they true? And do they pay any insignificance versus that skill of understanding human psychology and being able to actually engage people through the value of the content you're creating? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I'd say like, you need to understand the basics, right? Like, for example, and I'll just use LinkedIn as an example. If you put a link in your post, they generally don't like that. So that's Mm. a basic, like you just, those are basics of the platform, right? There are basics on every platform, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn. So just getting the basics matters. But that improvement that people are looking for, that engagement that people are looking for doesn't come from understanding the small, insignificant pieces of the algorithm. And, you know, people ask me this all the time. They're like, oh, have you noticed a change? Or sure. Sometimes I notice things do worse than I thought they would or better Mm. than I thought they would. But for the most part, like if people stopped studying algorithms and just started studying people, they would have tremendously more success, right? Human psychology, like I, I wrote this the other day, stop studying algorithms, start studying people. Algorithms change, people don't. And people say, oh, people change, people change. Yes, I get that, that people change. The way that people make decisions has not changed in thousands of years. And the way that people react and what motivates them and inspires them has not changed in thousands of years. 
And so if you can understand the core principles behind human psychology, you don't need to get the algorithm. Mm. You need to learn psychology and learn how to write. If you can do those two things, the algorithm will generally show your content to a lot of people because it's good. Yeah. that That's the trick. <laughs> <laughs> so let's take one part of what you just said, and it relates to that nine-step process you mentioned before. And the first step of that process is collecting ideas. Now, I'm curious how you collect your ideas and perhaps the process you use, but also on that point there, are you a big reader? Do you read books? Do you listen to podcasts? How do you get the insights that ultimately feed their way into the content you write? Because you're not, there's a certain amount of repurposing and doubling down on things that work, but you've got to keep fresh ideas coming through. Otherwise Mm -hmm. that stuff becomes stale pretty quickly, right? Yeah. I'm going to get skewered for saying this, but I am not a big reader. Like, I like certain books. I really enjoyed Atomic Habits by James Clear. I really enjoyed Factfulness by Hans Rosling. I might read a book every other month, maybe, maybe once a quarter, maybe four books a year. And I know that's not a popular thing to say, but I read a lot online. I Mm. read a lot of creators that I respect. I read a lot of technical, you know, blog posts. I read a lot of technical Twitter threads. I like to like, I like tactical and practical stuff. I like to figure out how to actually do something. I'm not so interested in philosophy and things like that. I, I, I mostly like to sit around and think about things on my own. Um, but I, I use those times when I'm walking with my wife as really good ideation times. We'll be chatting about something, talking about our community and like there's an idea will pop and I'll just pop it into my notion document, which I have on my phone and I'll just write that idea down. I get a ton of ideas in the shower I have a waterproof pencil and notepad there. So I'll just jot mm-hmm. an idea down. Um, I read a lot of people's content, newsletters, um, you know, like I said, tweet threads, blog posts. They come to my inbox, morning brew, mail brew. I, I kind of get all those. And like I might see something and I never want to see something and say, oh, I'm going to write about that. But I might see something and say, I have a difference of opinion or I have a contrarian take on that or I agree, but with some additional, you know, insight. And those things kind of get me thinking about what people want to hear about. Or I might jump onto a YouTube channel that's focused on solopreneurship and say, what are the most popular videos, right? Why are those popular? Could I turn that into something that is more text-based? Could I have a difference of opinion on that? And so that's generally where my ideas come from. Mm. And, And then the last part, which I think is the easiest, is just like, what am I working on? So for example, the nine step process that I walked you just quickly through earlier, uh, is something that, um, I just put together the other day based on a friend of mine, Dan Coe. He shared his process with me and I looked at his process and said, well, that's, that's not for me exactly. And I just tinkered with it until it became mine. Yeah. And then once I tinkered with that, it becomes really obvious to say, I should go out and show people what I just did. Just an idea, right? And then I can turn that into 10 pieces of content mm. that, that helps people understand my system. So really just talking about your experience in your day-to-day, there's there's learnings there. You just have to be cognizant of them so you can jot them down and be aware. Yeah, that's a great point actually about the experience because it is difficult for some to think that they have anything unique to say. I think that's another one of those obstacles that stop people from writing online. You know, what right have I got to be sharing my ideas? You know, everything's been said before, but of course, the one thing you've always got is your own life experience. Nobody can argue that anybody's shared exactly the same experiences as you. So going back to your process and your system, I've read a bit about this and I've heard you talk about it, but maybe you could explain literally how you might go through that process on a Monday. Yeah, I'll I'll walk through the process a little deeper. Um, 
So it starts with just collecting ideas. So as soon as I think of an idea, like I'm just looking at my my notion right now. So um, one idea I had was X steps to building stronger relationships online. And I was like, people struggle to build relationships. And by the way, that idea came from like my private community. Someone asked like, hey, how are you building relationships with some of these right. bigger creators online? I was like, oh, if someone wants to know that, then probably other people want to know that. So mm. I jotted that down, X steps to building relationships online. Well, I think I know what those are. I think I know why I've been able to do it. But I also am like, oh, I have a pretty big following. So it's probably a little bit easier for me. So let me go back to think about when I built some relationships with people when I didn't have a big following and, and I was able to build relationships with big creators. And then the second thing I do is the first one is ideation is do research. So I go out and I see, you know, what are other thought leaders in the space saying about building relationships online? What are some Twitter threads? What is some data that supports what I'm going to say? Because I don't just want to do... Um, you know, really nebulous stuff. I, I love having data to support it. I love having other people's opinions. I love having other people's frameworks and ideas. So like, for instance, I took that and I went out and I saw that Arvid Call had written something about that. I saw that Dan Coe had written something about that. Austin Belsack. I looked at people like Sashin Ramjay, who uh, is doing something to build a relationship with me. And I noted that and said like, he did hmm. something really cool that I've never done. So like, I wanted right. to make a note of that. So I just researched these folks I made some links to their Twitter content and I just said, okay, here's some stuff that backs up what I'm going to say. The third step is I want to write a newsletter about it. And I generally like to keep my newsletters less than four minutes. So I have a template for writing newsletters. The template is the how-to template out of TypeShare, which is done by Dickie Bush and Nicholas Cole. It's their piece of software. I take that template, it's in Notion, and I just start writing my newsletter. So the template literally tells me how to structure the newsletter. I've got the idea, I've got the research, and now I'm ready to go out and write the newsletter. So I write the newsletter as step three. Step four, I want to edit that. So I ask myself questions like, you know, have you uploaded visuals to help explain this? Um, are my sentences good? You know, did I stick to the topic? Do I have a good opening hook? Um, will this message be well received? Did I add relevant links? You know, are my sentences short, concise, sweet, to the point? You know, can I eliminate filler words? I have all these questions that I ask myself as I read mm. through the thing, and I just check those boxes off as step four. Step five, I do my Friday call to action. So using the newsletter that I wrote above, I look and say, how am I going to pre-sell this newsletter idea on Friday so that people subscribe to get it on Saturday? Once I do that, I write my post sell. My post sell is on Sunday. So every Sunday I say, hey, yesterday I talked about this thing. Did you miss it? Here's why you shouldn't have. And so I write my Sunday post CTA because it's all fresh in my mind. That's step six, right? Yeah. I I'm working on the same thing. Step seven is I copy and paste the newsletter down into another box. I rip it apart and I turn it into a Twitter thread. Then I upload it to Hype Fury. So I turn the same newsletter into a Twitter thread and I schedule it 12 weeks later. So when you read a newsletter, 12 weeks later, you're going to see it as a Twitter thread. Right. Once I have the thread template done, I look and I say, all right, the first thing I'm going to do, step eight, is turn this into a story. Start with attention, move to perspective, move to advantage, move to gamify. I have a four-step story writing uh, process. After I write a story, I look and I say, okay, what's an interesting observation that I noticed while um, about building relationships online? What's a contrarian take? So a commonly held belief about building relationships online that I think is wrong. That's a third type of post. What's a listicle? What are 14 steps to relationships or 12 tools you can use to build relationships or seven things people do to build relationships? Then I analyze it. Why do these things work? So that becomes another post. That is all step eight, writing content. So 
I've got a newsletter. I've got a Twitter thread. I've got five LinkedIn posts, five Twitter posts that come out of it, five Instagram posts that come out of it. And then the step nine is publishing. So do I publish my newsletter? When do I publish my thread? When do I publish my five LinkedIn posts, my five tweets, my five Instagram posts, and my one Instagram story? 18 pieces of content, one idea. Amazing. I love the way you break it down. But of course, you said this is a relatively recent adaptation or evolution of your process mm-hmm. and your system. I'm intrigued. So you, you said you're not a massive reader of books. I was going to no. ask you whether an obvious next step would be to write a book, but I wonder whether actually, because you're iterating so frequently, whether a book would be a, a medium that you'd you know, kind of agree with, as in it would agree with your system. I mean, do, how, do you, how do you think about that? Because obviously in your position with the audience that you've got, I'd imagine a book would land really, really well. But equally, you're someone who's putting fresh ideas out so much that would that book content quickly become out of date? How do you think about it? Probably. I think there, there's pros and cons. I think the pros are, you know, books really solidify your expertise. They make you well-known in the space, right? It's it's good pub, right? It, mm. it looks good. It, it feels good to have a book, be an author, yeah. right? It's, it's sort of a, a rom- you, you know, you romanticize that a little bit. Uh, the downside is that I change all the time. Mm. And so if I wrote something, I think it would probably, if I wrote something, I would try and write something that's pretty evergreen. Yeah. Something that when you read 10 years from now still resonates yeah. versus writing a tactical and practical book. That's what I use social media for. Um, and I just don't feel like I have to. And that's not like, a, 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 I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I just mm. mean, um, I love writing every day on social media that, and I have a lot of followers and I get a lot of impressions and a lot of readers and a lot of engagement. So I don't necessarily know that a book adds something of value to my readers. I think it adds something of value to myself, right? It's a feel good thing. It's that pub we talked about earlier. And so maybe for that reason, like one day I'll want to do it. Um, But right now I just love sharing what's on my mind literally this second. And I love that about, about social media. What about podcast? Have you thought about you that? You know, yeah, I, I've thought about doing it. Uh, I'm a believer of doing things that you you enjoy um, because it allows you to stay consistent. I don't necessarily love hosting a podcast. I've I've done it before and I did it for another group and I didn't particularly enjoy the experience. I also don't like turning the camera around on myself. So right now you don't see me on things like TikTok. Um mm. I'm just uncomfortable with that. I, I, I yeah. like to be a guest on things like this. I enjoy that. Um, so I haven't done that. So I yeah. like to write. Now, that's not not to say that I won't push myself out of my comfort zone. You you may very well see me on hosting a podcast or, or on TikTok or something like that. Um, but I love to write. And yeah. I told my wife this the other day, and this may sound really weird, but like I wake up early on Monday, generally before my alarm goes off, like 4.30, like excited. Mm. Like I love to write. I love to get my ideas out there. I love to get my work done. And that that to me is a good sign, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. On that last question about the creative process. So the writing, now obviously you've got these incredible systems and frameworks and having those constraints actually, as you suggested, can make you more creative in many circumstances. Do you ever just sit down and write without those constraints? You know, just sit down and think, well, I've got an hour and a half. I'm just going to write whatever comes to me. I wonder how that feeds into your thought process. I generally don't. There's something else that I do. Um, 
I either use my systems because writing is a, is is I enjoy it, but it is also work. So mm-hmm. it 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 is a requirement for me to get done. It's a requirement that I put on myself. By the way, if I didn't write for a week, the world wouldn't fall apart. But like that's just not how I operate. So I just want to make sure I get it done every single week because I treat it like a job. Yeah. Um, but I never sit down generally when just say like I don't really know what to write. Maybe I'll just start writing. When I do what I do do that's different than systems is. When an idea pops into my mind that is unrelated to how I write for my business, most of my business stuff is tactical and practical, as I mentioned before. It's all about how to do something. But every once in a while, I just have like a philosophical thought about life or mm. you know work or whatever, um, and I'll just sit down and write it. So a perfect example of that is I wrote a really long form piece of content called How to Design an Intentional Life. And... Um, it's probably my longest and the work that I'm probably the most proud of. Um, it was just an epiphany that I had about it, it kind of came after that panic attack. As I mm. revisited that, I thought, what are all the things that shifted and changed in my mind? And what are all the realizations that I had? Um, and I sat down and just wrote it. it. It doesn't fit my business, yeah. uh, but I put it on my website and and people love it. And so that was awesome. I love doing stuff like that. Every once in a while, it just happens. I get excited about a topic that's unrelated to my business or or quasi-related or adjacent, and uh, yeah. and I'll sit down and just write it. Brilliant. Yeah, interesting. On that, so I suppose related to the redesign of your life and to the point about burnout. So you were working in fast-growing tech businesses with a lot of pressure, a lot of expectation, does burnout go with the territory in that role? If you did it again, do you think you could approach it differently now? Do you think you'd have been able to manage that role, manage that expectation without the end result of burning out? How do you think about that? Is it possible to achieve that scale of growth without hitting the wall? Hmm. Maybe. Yeah, I'm sure there I'm sure there are people who could raise their hand and say, well, I've done it. So it's possible. Um, I think it's on a person by, by person basis. Uh, I think my personality traits happen to lend myself to burning out mm. at a pretty high rate. Um, I'm, I'm really obsessive about things. Uh, uh, I like to work. Um, so I think, you know, I'm very detail oriented, I'm the kind of person who's like, I'm always on time for a meeting. Like, I don't like when people aren't on time. I don't like when people reschedule things. Like, I, I'm like very, very minutely focused. And um, after a while, that ha- just has its way of wearing you down. Um, even if I were able to change that, I get bored pretty easily. So if you look at my career, I, I've had a pretty good career since 2009, but all my stops are sort of four, four and a half, five years. Mm. And that's when I get sort of bored. So like I was at ZocDoc for four and a half years and I left, went to Patient Pop, was there four and a half years. Then I left, I am three and a half years into this solopreneur journey. And I mean, I've said this on podcast before, but like a year from now, I might just stop and, you know, open up a brewery, right. Or build a bagel shop or something like it. It it just, I like figuring new stuff out. And like, I think that's, what's really fun about life. So that's not necessarily burnout, but I think boredom Mm. can, can accelerate. burnout. Well, I think, I think I've had a realization about burnout and I mean, my understanding about burnout was always just exhaust. Well, 
literally reaching that point where you break down. And as I've come to understand it better, and I've had a couple of people on the show who are burnout experts, and, and actually the most interesting insight is that, yeah, it can result in exhaustion, but there's also the cynicism part. You start becoming a bit cynical about the thing that you're doing. It's disillusionment. And that's when I realized that I'd had burnout in my last business, because despite the fact that all of the conditions were right, business doing well, great team around you, doing work that you really enjoy, you start having that feeling where actually it doesn't feel the same and you feel disillusioned. So I get it. I get that sort of the, the, the need for renewal sometimes and to be reinvigorated. It's probably, it's probably human nature and some of us are more predisposed to it than others more quickly. And I suppose that's evidence in what you were saying just a moment yeah. ago about sort of four year, the four-year itch. Yeah, for sure. And like, um, you know, whenever I answer questions like on podcasts, I always try and be very clear to the audience. Like, you know, my experience will always be different than your experience. Mm. And like, you know, if you're, if you're great at being at a company for 20 years, no shame in that game, right? Like my dad worked for the same company for 40 years. And so I think that partly because he did that, I'm the opposite. Mm. And, um, you know, that this is just sort of, sort of my journey. And I think of burnout as not even exhaustion. Um, yes, exhaustion is an outcome of burnout, but burnout gets this stigma of, of, working hard or overworked or working too much or whatever. And like I work harder now than I did as an executive at my last company. Um, I can work all day. I can work from morning till night. I will not burn out. Burnout to me is not about work. It is about control, at least for me. Right. And so like when things got so big at patient pop that I like was so in the business instead of on the business. And I was trying to figure things out and I couldn't do it. And things were spiral. Like that is a loss of control. Mm. And to me, a loss of control is, is at least again, for me is what burnout is. Um, working hard, you do that all day. And, um, and so that to me is always, I think a miss when people assume that burnout comes from hard work, at least yeah. in my experience. I mean, that's the reason I don't like the phrase work-life balance because it often paints the work part as the problematic part. Very often people say, I haven't got enough work-life balance. And what they're saying is I'm working too much when, you know, that for me, the two have to work in harmony. And that's when you know you've got it right. And it sounds to me like that's the point you're at now. You've kind of, your work and your personal life are complementary. You know, the, mm -hmm. the walks in the morning add value to the work that you're doing. The fact that you're doing work you enjoy means that you can get it done more quickly and to a high quality, which means when you do step away, you can relax more. And when you've got that, that flywheel I, I talk about, that's when you've got it nailed, I think. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah, I, I love the fact that my work and my life are synergistic. Yeah. So uh, look, I really appreciate the time today, Justin. I've got one more question, and this is kind of future looking. Now, you, you said before you're investing in businesses and advising early stage businesses. You must get a look at loads of ideas that are out there, new products and new services. I'm interested in whether there's a problem that you still experience day to day, and it might be in your work or personal life, that hasn't been solved yet. A problem that maybe if you didn't have six, seven different businesses that you were running yourself, you'd think, well, that's a problem that could really easily be solved. And uh, maybe something that budding entrepreneurs or sodapreneurs out there might be able to get their teeth in. So is there one thing that you think, well, actually, if we could solve that, that would make my life better? Yeah, it's a great question. It's really good for you, man. You're sourcing all these great ideas. Um, <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm teasing. Uh, yeah, there, there is an idea uh, or, or at least a problem that I think exists. You know, everyone says that sort of community is the new sort of growth engine, right? Um, and I think the space is really immature. 
Mm. I, I think that, um, you know, there are synchronous communities and asynchronous communities. And when you choose an asynchronous community platform, generally I've found that engagement is pretty low. Um, when you choose a synchronous community, I have generally found that engagement is pretty high, but you're left with a bunch of tools that don't work very well together. Mm. So for example, if you choose to run your community on Discord or Slack, which are the most popular synchronous community you know, platforms, you're left with an, a, a messy, unintegrated you know, rest of solutions. So you want a member directory, you want an events platform, you want um, you know, a resource library, those have to live somewhere else. And because Discord and Slack play so poorly with you know, um, other systems uh, in terms of kicking people out when they churn, things like that, mm. you're just left with a bunch of pieces. I experienced this firsthand. And um, again, the only sort of other option is to go async. And when you go async, engagement drops. And that's why I think it's a, it's a problem that is yet to be solved. And I think it is ripe for solving. And whomever solves that effectively will own the community space. Mm. Just writing that down in my idea book, and uh, I, I won't, I won't publish this part. I'll just keep this, keep this bit private. Um, no, it's really interesting. Well, look, Justin, is there anything else you want to share with the audience? I mean, obviously, I'll share links to your website and to your LinkedIn and Twitter profiles. But anything you want to add before we wrap up? I mean, when we're filming this, it's uh, the economy is looking pretty barren right now, and you know, I just, I would just highly encourage people. If you've got a cool idea or a side project or something that you want to work on, it's a great time to work on it. I don't care that the market's down and the economy looks bad. Like this is the time, right? This is the time where you know it's it's unknown what's going to happen to a lot of jobs, and I think having a safety net is is a must today. And not only is it a must in terms of financial, but I've never learned as much as I have in the last three and a half years just working for myself. And I highly encourage people, if you're scared, just dip your toe in the water, Mm. write one thing, build one thing, record one thing, do one thing. And if you do that, it gets pretty addictive. And the outcome is that, you know, you can build something really fun and interesting and meet some really great people. So I just highly encourage and and challenge people to get out there and, and get started if they haven't. Great advice. Thanks again, Justin. Awesome. Appreciate it.